This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode is sponsored by Treliant. In this episode, Maria Devonzo returns to discuss U.S. privacy laws and European privacy laws with an angle towards the compliance perspective. She also talks about the need for trusted resources, whether it be outside counsel or other resources for the compliance professional. We conclude by looking at the reputational damage your company can sustain if you allow personal information to be released even internally within your company about your customers. It's a fabulous episode, one every compliance professional needs to consider privacy and compliance. Hello everyone, Tom Fox back with Maria Davanzo. And today we're going to take up some privacy issues. So Maria, first of all, welcome back. Thanks. So good to be here with you, Tom. I appreciate it. So the privacy landscape is either one of the most interesting or one of the most frustrating. I'm not sure which. Maybe it's in between because here in the United States, obviously, we have no national law. We have a plethora of state laws led by California. But if you're a U.S. international corporation, you're in Europe where there's GDPR and in the United Kingdom, GDPR law. The privacy landscape can be incredibly And I wanted to start with how have you seen that evolve literally over the past five years since GDPR became law in the EU? Yeah, you're right. It's really been quite quite a growth in the privacy area, and it is very interesting since 2018. GDPR, when it came out, really changed things, I think, if you're a privacy professional, for the better, because it no longer was privacy just a paper check-the-box type of issue, right? It it really made its way to the executive agenda and into the business process, right? And that's probably because of the concept from GDPR of privacy by design. NPR, with its requirements, with its reach, and with its various remedies, I think that those three things have really been the, the real cause for why privacy has developed so much since, since 2018. In addition to the EU broadly and the UK, I'm sure you know that there are other countries that also came out with laws that were very similar to the GDPR. Singapore, Australia, Brazil come to mind. China even came out with a privacy law of sorts, focused mostly on security initially. And then Canada, I think, rebooted its privacy law. It had always had one, but after GDPR, took another look at it. Those, those countries developed laws since GDPR or strengthened their laws. And then 
the U.S., the various states followed suit, as you said, beginning with California. Now we have six, six states, actually, in the U.S. that currently have state privacy laws. So there's been lots of growth in that area since 2018, for sure. So if you were asked by a client or counseled a client on how to begin to think through implementing a global privacy policy, how might you at least start that conversation with them? Yeah, that's a big challenge, right? So in, in my prior role, in addition to the chief ethics and compliance officer hat, I also wore the chief privacy officer hat. And we absolutely needed to wrestle with that. We were in 60 different countries. And so the way I started it was I found myself a really good outside counsel, right? A really good privacy lawyer. I worked with a guy who is now at Gibson Dunn. He sits in London, smart lawyer, focused solely on privacy. So a guru of sorts in the privacy area but really a practical guy. And he was so busy with privacy that that in and of itself permitted me to trust his advice because he didn't need the business, so to speak. And one of the things we did together was we assessed what laws applied to to my organization, given my, my geography, the type of data that we collected, how we used that data, with whom did we share the data. And then when we saw which laws would be applicable, we did an assessment as to which one was the most restrictive and then came up with a global privacy program that rose to that level. Generally speaking, for most organizations, I think that would probably be GDPR, assuming that the GDPR was applicable. But if not, in the, if there are areas where there's a more restrictive law for you as an organization, then you should you should meet that standard across the board because you can't have a structured framework within your privacy program, it's just unsustainable. Bria, let me pick up on a different point that you raised in that answer, which was utilizing trusted outside counsel. You said you had, a, in your mind, just an excellent privacy lawyer. And I wondered if you could say a few words about the utilization of a true subject matter expert even if you're a chief compliance officer, bringing in someone who can help you, who can help either graft your program, look at your program, or just advise you. Could you say a few words about that part of being a CCO? Yeah, sure. That was super important to me, both as a CEO and as, as a privacy officer. But the way I utilized the outside counsel as a subject matter expert, privacy certainly was broad because I wasn't as versed in the privacy area as I was on the compliance side. With regard to compliance, really anti-bribery and corruption issues and economic sanction, sanctions issues were the two areas in which I leveraged uh, a different outside counsel, but also e equally as a well-versed in the area. You have to be, as a CEO and as a privacy officer, you have to be humble and understand what you don't know <laughs> and where you need that advice and counsel and not be afraid to ask for that help. You spoke about the international scene, largely GDPR, but a number of other countries. Now let's turn to U.S. domestic. And this may be perhaps either the most interesting, the most challenging, or the most frustrating because of the wide variety of privacy laws literally across our 50 states. How do you begin to think through or how would you begin to think through a policy given the inconsistency of the 50 states and, of course, the absence of federal legislation on this issue? Yeah, I would take a similar approach as I did at the global level. Before we get there, there are, like I said, there are six states, right? So California, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, Virginia, and interestingly, Iowa very recently just enacted a law there. 
As you probably know, there's federal law that's been proposed by the U.S. Congress, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. I'm not really sure that's going anywhere. It's been out there for a while. And since we have these six states that have different approaches, it would be difficult for federal law to, to cover off on all of those. There are some high-level similarities in those laws, but there are enough differences to make it a compliance challenge, which is interesting and frustrating at the same time. I would focus on things like data mapping, right? Do you know where your data is? Purging old data, you have to be very aware of getting rid of data that you no longer need for legitimate business use because otherwise there's a chance for misuse as well as if you get hit with a data breach or data incident, as we like to call it when I was practicing, a leak of data that you didn't need that could cause harm. Nobody needs that problem, right? If vendor treatment of data, IT and security issues, policies and notices, and then how you handle data requests. Those topics are really at the heart of any strong data privacy program. And if you're covering off on all of those, the odds are very good. You're going you're gonna to be compliant with all of the six state laws that are out there today. Let's move to your incident issue because cybersecurity incidents are as ubiquitous as about any other type of incident in the corporate world now. And probably since Target and their HVAC vendor got them hacked moving forward, we've seen regulators and even the Securities and Exchange Commission struggle with telling us how and when companies should reveal that information, release that information. So I wanted to maybe start with how do you see that trajectory in the United States in terms of publicly announcing an incident has occurred and data may have been compromised? Yeah, that's a tough one. I've dealt in large measure with European incidents and having to deal with the data regulators over there. And typically there would be a disclosure requirement if there was some significant harm to to a data subject in, in connection with that incident. And I think that the U.S. would likely take a similar approach. It's not just disclosure with regard to the regulator, right? There are also issues that when you're in the seat, you need to think about with regard to, do you tell your customer, for example, that you've had an incident, even if it didn't rise to the level of your being required to disclose it from a legal perspective? And that really, I found it really just depended, and it's such a lawyer answer, it's facts and circumstances specific, right? And so it just depends not only on what happened and how bad was it, so to speak, but also where are you in the world? There were jurisdictions in which we had incidents that did not rise to the level of requiring legal disclosure. And we did, we took the position we did not have disclosed it to our, uh, to our customers for various reasons, maybe the data was stale and other issues. But then there was another jurisdiction that we found ourselves in. The culture was such that had the customers found out from another source that this had occurred, they really would have not been pleased because it was a jurisdiction which overdisclosure, especially in the privacy space, was appreciated and it was not in Europe, which I found surprising. And we took, we made the business decision to inform all of the customers that were involved as to what had happened, what we did, the impact or rent or remediation and all that. So, it's a really tough it's a really tough decision to make when you're in the seat and somewhat akin to the voluntary disclosure rules that we talked about in connection with the DOJ requirements, right? It's not exactly to that same level, but it's, it's the same sort of concepts and the same assessment. 
Let me change that response question from an external focus to an internal focus. Because if you do have an incident, you may be extorted or required to make a payment. You have to determine what's been compromised and how you're going to remediate it. How would you help a chief compliance officer or a new chief data privacy officer think through their internal response to an incident? Are you asking as far as who within the with whom in the organization that you share the information? How would you think about responding? Do you have a response team? Is it solely on the shoulders of a DPO? Do you, I certainly assume you notify the CEO, but is there really a, an action committee that, that goes into action when an incident occurs? Sure, understood. Yes, yes. If you are, if you're in that seat as a CEO or a chief privacy officer, you should be collaborating really with your chief information security officer, and the two of you together should come up with, as you referred to, Tom, a response plan, an incident response plan specific to cybersecurity incidents. I assume companies will have a crisis management type plan, but cybersecurity incidents are just so specific and different that you need to have that committee of folks, as you say, together. So yes, it'll be your general counsel certainly will be involved in, in, in that process. You would have some high-level folks from your marketing team certainly involved in order to manage the message in the event that, you know, you need to go external to the organization. Uh, Your CISO, your chief compliance officer, you may have your outside counsel as part of that, depending on the severity of the incident. And, yes, you'll notify certainly your CEO. As far as whether you're going to notify your board, your board or your audit committee, again, will really depend on the materiality of the incident. But yes, it's absolutely a, a group effort and you should, in addition to a response plan, I would also counsel folks to engage in some desktop exercises, right? Because the worst thing that could happen is that you just learn as you go and your first incident is the only time that you've ever addressed any of these issues. And of course, the pressures of a real situation are more than if it's desktop, but you should have that practice because... It's just a matter of time. Cyber cybersecurity incidents are happening across the world to all of us. So practice. Let me ask you to put on your chief privacy officer hat. And what's the relationship or interplay between a chief privacy officer and a CISO, chief technology officer, or a similar situated someone with a little more technical focus? Yeah, I think it's a, it should be a partnership. There should be lots of collaboration between those two folks. When I was the chief privacy officer, I worked very closely with my chief information security officer. We had regular meetings. We shared information. We issued joint, joint emails, joint guidance. It never ceased to surprise me that he would invariably know of some initiative that the business was looking to engage in before my privacy group would, and sometimes vice versa. And it became necessary for us to both remind the business folks that they had to call us in often and early. And yeah, no, it's just a true partnership. I can't say as important enough of those two two folks working together very closely. Let me ask you if I could to speculate about something that was in the headlines recently, and it involved Tesla. Tesla had, they have cameras in their automobiles, and passengers and or drivers may be a little surprised to know that Tesla keeps those videos if the video is on. And they were sharing that internally in Tesla. Uh, I would have to assume that violates 
about every privacy rule there is, but any thoughts on that? Unfortunately, we've seen those types of situations, and really any thoughts on how the chief privacy officer can communicate to the business people who may have video or other information that's legitimate business, but it has to be siloed or at least put in a place where others can't view it? Yes, yeah, so a couple thoughts about that Tesla situation, right? As I was reading about that, I just continued to shake my head because it was just astonishing to me what was going on. My understanding is Tesla's gotten sued in connection with the sharing of those videos. The employees were, I think it was the recent lawsuit or one prior to, they were putting them on the internal Tesla sort of teams type channel and sharing them for their own entertainment, really. Look, the chief privacy officer there has his or her hands full, certainly. You can educate, you can train. Of course, we offer training, and so they can certainly roll out training about the privacy aspects of what happened there and why they shouldn't be doing that. But to me, it shocked me as I was reading about it as a broader company culture problem, right? That, that, that folks thought it was perfectly okay to share that type of information. Look, maybe 20 years ago, you say, ah. But today, with the types of conversations we're having about company culture, about appropriate behavior, about conduct, and the folks just doing this without thinking twice about it, I think it's a broader conversation that they should be having at Tesla about their culture and about how we operate and what, what's right and, and wrong. Marie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but if our listeners wanted more information on the services that Treliance offers around this, what would be the best place for them to go? They can go to the Treliance website, certainly, to find out about all of our services, or I'm on LinkedIn. They can reach out to me directly, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with them. Marie, as always, I greatly enjoy the chance to visit with you, and I think this may be one area that we could revisit down the road. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report, which has been sponsored by Treliant. We've linked to Treliant in the show notes as well as Maria's uh, LinkedIn profile. She is a great resource for you as a compliance professional. So if you have any questions, I would urge you to follow up uh, with Maria. You can reach her through LinkedIn. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.